confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I am your host, Rebecca Millsoff, features editor at Billboard and Broadway follower in chief here. Getting very excited for the Tonys, which are very soon. Uh, I would recommend looking back at uh, episodes this year. I've had, I would say, the majority of the nominees on the podcast. Uh, So take a look at the Billboard on Broadway archive uh, if you feel so moved. So, uh, you know, there are musicals that excel first and foremost on a very ground floor artistic level with great performers and enjoyable songs. There are musicals that are more totally about pizzazz and show-stopping numbers above all. Maybe they don't always have those basic artistic bona fides to back it up, but they have a lot of enjoyable flash. Um, But it's rare to get both of those things in one really good show, Um, a musical that feels like the epitome of theatrical entertainment the way the new adaptation of Beetlejuice on Broadway does. From the minute you walk into the Winter Garden Theater, where it is, which is one of the biggest theaters on Broadway, you feel like you've entered some kind of combination of mega haunted house and fun house. There is palpable excitement in the air, uh, which is, of course, in part because this is a musical take on the beloved Timber and movie, uh, which blended quick-witted comedy with beautiful visuals to tell the story of Lydia Dietz, the sort of dark young girl who befriends the title uh, Antic Demon, along with two friendly ghosts who are stuck in the house that she and her dad move into after her mother dies. Once the show itself starts, though, it's clear that there is a lot more reason to be excited about. Thanks to the imaginative vision of director Alex Timbers and a whole lot of stagecraft that I haven't entirely figured out yet, uh, you're going to feel transported into a very crazy world and underworld if you see the show. The music by composer and lyricist Eddie Perfect, who also wrote the music for this past season's King Kong musical, matches the alternately goth and manic energy of the storyline. And the actors are a group of Broadway comedy veterans and magnetic new faces who definitely rise to the very challenging task of making the audience forget for at least a couple hours about the iconic actors who originated their roles. Uh, For good reason, it is nominated for eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Original Score for Perfect, who came to the podcast this week with two of the show's stars, Sophia Ann Caruso, who plays Lydia, 
and Carrie Butler, who plays uh, friendly ghost Barbara, uh, to talk all about the show. Your mom. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you. Thank you. We're yeah, like we're I'm just a few blocks south of you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, I have to start by making an embarrassing confession, which is that I'm I'm a person in her 30s who never saw Beetlejuice the movie. Yeah. So your show was like my first experience. I mean, I've seen clips, mm-hmm. but this was my first Beetlejuice experience. Wow, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I always think it's awesome when people come in knowing nothing. Yeah, yeah, uh, and expecting nothing. That's that's actually really cool to me that you haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, sometimes I like just going in completely like dumb and like blank because I you mean, see it after. No, oh, because it's, I'm it's, still it's you're pretty, still my only Beetlejuice. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really different. I mean, that's the thing about it, adapting something that's iconic. It'd be much easier if you didn't if no one knew anything about it, and you can just tell the story you wanted to tell because you're always juggling those two things, aren't you? You know, like serving the film and people's memory of the film and the iconic imagery of the film and and also trying to make it work on stage yeah. in a two-act structure. You can't just slap the movie on stage. It has to be adapted uh, for stage because film and stage are obviously two very, very different things. Um, but I think we did a really good job of uh, leaving the, the fan favorites in yes. and uh, adapting it. And making it work. But it also definitely really works because the movie itself is really big in theme and in style. So putting that on the stage is easier than putting other films on stage, I think. Totally. I mean, it's definitely a movie with a lot of inherent theatricality. Um, Well, I want to start with you, Eddie, because uh, you're sort of a new composer to uh, Broadway audiences and you've had a very busy past season. Yeah. Um, So I would love to just hear a little bit for people who aren't uh, as familiar with you about sort of what your typical music is like, how you kind of came to uh, writing for musical theater and why this show appealed to you as a project. Well, um, I'll do a, try and do a condensed version of that. So I'm from, I was born. <laughs> I was born in a little barn in uh, Melbourne, Australia. I grew up in Melbourne. And um, Melbourne, for those of you who don't know, is a great cultural city. It has excellent live music, incredible improvised live music scene, great uh, theatre community, opera, jazz, contemporary art, contemporary dance. It's a really happening town. It also has one of the largest comedy festivals in the world after uh, Edinburgh Fringe, the Melbourne... International Comedy Festival, and I studied music theatre as a performer but um, in parallel uh, was interested in composing for theatre and so I used my time as a student to turn my fellow classmates into guinea pigs and um, write stuff for group device projects and whenever there was an opportunity to write something I put my hand up and I eventually wrote um, a kind of a song cycle in my final year of, of study and and I remember that eclipsing the sensation of performing, going, oh, this is heaps better. You know, I really love this sense of making something, like making a, a world. Um, so when I left drama school, I was performing in plays and musicals and TV, but I also was writing and I mostly write comedy and started doing comedy festivals, the Melbourne International Comedy Festivals on my doorstep. So I started there and did well there and then toured to London and 
Edinburgh and, and wrote a lot of solo shows where it was me, combination of stand-up comedy and a whole bunch of original songs and every show was sort of based around a particular theme, whether that's domestic politics or marketing and advertising or um, human biology. And um, so that's why I kind of cut my teeth in writing comedic songs. So um, I did write a musical in Australia about a cricketer that none of you would know or understand. And uh, it sounds um, like we need to. Yeah, but uh, that was a f- that was fun. Sort of doing a biographical thing about someone that represented the best and worst of, of Australia. Um, but it was you know it's uh, Australia doesn't have a culture of making our own musicals, and I knew I wanted to kind of get out and come to the place that created the art form. Um, and collaborate with people. That was the big thing. And Beetlejuice was my first shared collaboration with a book writer and well, two book writers, Anthony Scott, uh, Anthony Brown and um, Scott Brown and Anthony King. Jesus, I can't get their names right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that was what the process was to get here. And um, it's been an incredible experience to start on a musical in New York that's as big as Beetlejuice. It's crazy. Well, I I think it's really important to know about your comedy writing background because I feel like a big kind of topic that's emerged this particular season on Broadway is like how hard it is to do a musical comedy really well and kind of how long it's been since we've seen like really great musical comedies on Broadway. And in in recent years, it seems like there are more of them. And Carrie was just in Mean Girls, which was obviously (laughs) one of them. Um, But like, why do you think it's so difficult to do? And why do you think it's kind of succeeding so well with the show? I think, um, you know, this, here, here's a bit of a controversial statement. I think comedy is one of the hardest things to do out of all the uh, art forms, mainly because you have one intended audible, um, like, success meter, and that is people laughing. In a <laughs> drama, you know, you you don't get to hear whether there's pe- people are being emotionally affected or not, and you can kind of fool yourself into, mm-hmm. you know, rambling on for four hours. And, and, Although it would, and, it would kind of believing. be great if they did, like if you just heard like <laughs> gasps of like devastation uh, in the audience. Well, yeah, you do. I mean, even in a drama, you do get attuned to how an audience is, is reacting. Audiences are incredibly audible, like as a performer. Um but I, I love I love working in comedy because I think you can get away with more and I tend towards darker material. So I love the medium of comedy because you can, if you're making people laugh, you can really talk about some serious things. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yes, I tend to do shows about death and dying, <laughs> all yeah. sorts of dark things. People ask me that a lot, like, why do you do so much stuff that's like about death and darkness? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a magnet for it. <laughs> I'm just a magnet, and I also enjoy it. So I'm not. I'm not about just putting on a campy musical that just makes you feel only happy, like to make people think. But I, I'm glad you said campy because I feel like this show is like kind of the true definition of camp in a way because it has it has the sort of theatrical too muchness, but it also like it does have heart, and there is something serious at the center of, like, the aesthetic that it's putting forth? I don't know if you all agree yeah. with that or not. I don't, I don't know necessarily if, if camp is the word. I think that we we keep the... it. We do discuss dark things, and I think that the comedy keeps it upbeat. Um, and I think that... Uh, They've written a very, very funny show, and I think that that um, I think that that is what keeps it upbeat mostly. And uh, then there's the sort of subplot of the darker stuff. And people tell me that you know, they haven't laughed that hard in so long. But then days later, they can't stop thinking about it because it was really thought provoking. And they didn't, the surprising part is that they didn't think they would be touched that much. 
Mm-hmm. No, completely. Well, the two of you kind of came to the show from very different paths that I'm interested in. Um, Sophia, I've followed your career for a very long time, strangely, <laughs> and actually went to the workshop of The Secret Life of Bees. Oh, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Um, and I mean, the last big musical thing we saw you in here was uh, Lazarus. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, like, after you've done a show that's all David Bowie songs, how do you kind of move on to the next project? Why was did this feel right to you? How do you kind of move on to music that isn't David Bowie but is still great? Uh, well, I, I can I, stand it, Sophia. Yeah. No, 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 no. I think I think Eddie writes wonderful music, and he's uh, he's really great. Uh, I think that it's just different for every show. I don't really cling to a specific style. For this, I use like musical theater slash like rock, uh, and. And yeah, it's just different for every show. I try not to like limit myself to one style. Uh, I just sing. I don't try to be any, you know, other singer. I just, I just sing and sing in the character, and it just sort of comes out that way. I don't have like a process of like deleting the way I sound or something before the next thing. No, and you're like you're very good in like a rock context. Thank you. Is that something that you were you always into sort of pop and rock music? Like, or is this sort of yeah? What your I've voice always loved rock. I always liked Hole and all those like super cool '90s like girl punk bands, um, which actually I have a Lydia playlist and it's full of like Hole and uh, Courtney Love and stuff like that. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, good boot stomping music. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carrie, like, I feel like you've you've emerged as like one of the funniest people on Broadway in general. <laughs> and I mean, having recently done Mean Girls, I was kind of curious whether that was an instructive experience at all and how you approach, you know, as, as Sophia was saying, like a movie that has kind of like a cult following, then gets a musical adaptation. And how do you kind of like start and make it your own? Um, well, I've done so many movies that have turned into musicals, um, you know, like Hairspray and Xanadu. Oh, true. And <laughs> so now I kind of have a, a plan for doing them. I do the workshop workshop first and the readings, and I don't watch the movie. And so I make it my own. And then once I have my take on it, then I'll go back and watch the movie and make sure I'm not doing something that's going to completely disappoint the fans. And I'll, you know, sprinkle in little shout outs to that character from the movie um but yeah and like when I did Mean Girls um I wasn't trying to do Tina Fey but we were already friends and so everyone would come and be like that you nailed Tina Fey you you impersonated her like so well and I I was like I wasn't even trying to do that it's just (laughs) like you have an image in your head and just like I never watched the movie I never tried to you know copy anything that she did and also the script was very different so it's kind of easy to and and the other characters I didn't watch the movie so I didn't try and make them like the people either and they gave me complete freedom really and that was the case here too oh yeah totally and I feel like my part is kind of the least identifiable with the movie. You know, like Sophia has a harder job because people, you know, love that Lydia character, Alex, as Beetlejuice. You have to be kind of close to what that was. But I don't know, the Maitlands, yeah, the Maitlands. there is beloved. Yeah, the, the Maitlands are interesting because um, cause they're not interesting. And they have to, they, <laughs> you know, everyone kind of, once you slip into this notion of a, of a vanilla trope, it's it's very hard to make an audience care about them over a long period of time. There's a lot of style in the film that allows that to come across. But we've, you know, we, Kerry was in the workshop from the very beginning and just instinctively understood the function of Scott and Anthony and 
my sense of comedy, which is sort of emerged, which is where there are characters whose need is like out front and centre. They have a huge need, but they but they often act against it, or there's something a particular obstacle in the way, usually themselves, and they <laughs> certainly don't know that they're um, funny. But it's such a joy, you know, like it's it's a little bit of a drug when you feed stuff to. Kerry, where it's where you where you see um, Barbara breaking out of this kind of cosseted, closed-off shell to be something new and and something exciting. I mean, I think we all kind of identify, like the majority of the audience identifies with that character that wants to break mm-hmm. out and wants to be new and wants to be free, and wants to do something they've never done before, and wants to take a risk and wants to connect, and that. As soon as you start throwing that stuff to Carrie, it's hilarious in the room, and you just can't help but throw more and more. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, you find like a lot of hilarity in kind of in how boring they are. I think that's what <laughs> makes it so funny. Yeah, because we're boring. I think we like. I mean, I don't want to. I'm sure you guys are probably more interesting, but you know, I I identify with the maintenance. I'm like, yeah, you know, like we do tend to stay in our comfort zone. And even when they die, they're like, yeah, we, we don't want to do anything risky. And it's like, why not? What's going to happen? You're not going to die. You're already dead. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, I said the Maitlands were the closest part I played to myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so funny. Well, I wanted to talk about the music a bit because I, I, think of, I, I think of it as identifying more with like an overall vibe than with any one particular genre of sound. I'm curious to hear all of your takes on sort of what makes the music in the show so singular because to me it's like the the whole show has this very like antic kind of fun house energy and I think that whether it's through a rock song or something that feels a little more punk or something that feels more pop ballady um that's all sort of part of the vibe of the music yeah yeah I I when I was talking to Alex Timbers um our director um before I had the gig and when I was just pitching on it he said to me, you know, we wanted to be sort of can the hearing kind of kind of carnival music, kind of demented circus music, kind of a little bit oingo boingo. And I remember I was on the phone and I was like, cause I was terrified because I was talking to Alex Timbers <laughs> and I was in I was on tour in Brisbane and I'm like, yeah, yeah, oingo boingo. I had no idea what the hell that meant. <laughs> and if I just Googled it, I would have realized that's the name of Danny Elfman's band, right? He had this band called Oingo Boingo. And so I just set about writing what I thought was Boingo, boingo. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. So, and I'd only fessed up to Alex Timbers that about 18 months ago, and he That's thought it was so hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's like the script was surprising. The script, the comedy of the script and all of the characters is surprising. The first thing I noticed was um, Sophia's role, Lydia, was a very similar story to my wife's story. She lost her mum when she was very young, and I've obviously seen what that does to a person, you know, how a father isn't able to process or deal with or help their daughter deal with that and what that does Mm -hmm. to a human being. Um, And so I don't really have a kind of a massive process, but normally if you go, if you can write the heart of it first, everything else is sort of fun and gravy, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to write something that's just pure confection with no nutrients in it. So the first song I wrote was um, Dead Mom, which Soph sings in Act One. Uh, Lydia's sort of I want song and it's designed to be a song that any girl with a knowledge of a guitar can sit on their bed, yeah, play, play it on power chords. It's not complicated. Um, 
full of kind of indie bedroom rock angst. But Beetlejuice was just everything, like throw everything at the wall. You know, every personality needs a musical genre. And so they cycled through and then the task was just trying to corral all of those musical ideas into a song that felt like it had a shape and a form and made sense. It wasn't just a sprawling mess of genres. But, yeah, Beetlejuice sings kind of across every sort of style. And I like writing lots of different styles and and lots of different changing time signatures and feels and grooves, and so that was a fun thing to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And what about for the two of you who get to perform it? <laughs> oh, it's it's great. Eddie writes uh writes great music and uh yeah, he allows uh at least in my opinion, artistic freedom. A lot of uh musical writers are very like strict about staying on the melody and you know, I sometimes improvise a little bit. Um and yeah, he's he's fantastic and performing it every night is just it's just awesome. Um I t- I end, now that I'm thinking about it, I sing a lot. Uh, <laughs> I, I like it's actually a really vocal heavy show. I have like power ballad and rock songs and all these other things, and I'm like yelling half the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's actually it's it's pretty heavy. But um, Eddie's written like a manageable score for me to sing too, so that's great. And Chris like, Kugel, our musical director, makes oh, yeah. you sing high. He does make me <laughs> sing very high. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, funny enough, I, I was joking with a friend. They were like, Carrie Butler sings so high, and she sounds like a bird. I was like, yes, she sings in the key of dolphin. It's so high. It's so high, and you nail it every single oh. night. I have never not heard you crack, not one time. Oh, God, I have. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I like the idea of the key of dolphin. That's so funny. Yeah, super um, high. And that song, Maitland's 2.0, Eddie wrote, in tech. I, there were two other versions of that song before that. And that's one thing I love about Eddie, too, is that um, he's always working up until like the last minute and getting in um, changes and like something Tina Fey always says, like, there's always another joke. And that's, I feel like, how Eddie works. He's always, he's like, you know, you know what, that one's not right for the story. And he's always kind of working and, impro- and, and throwing out things that, that, you know, do get a reaction. But... It's not the right reaction. And it's crazy too because you can't just write a song and just turn up and go, everybody, we're doing this new song. And everyone goes, yeah, let's put on a show. <laughs> like you like you kind of have to like there's a, pro, like a lobbying process. You know, you have to you have to get Kerry Butler and Rob McClure to like it and want to do it. And thankfully these guys are um, brave and um, open-minded and open-hearted, and so that's kind of great. But then you've got to convince your director, or your book writers have to write in and out of it, and also inside of it, um, so they have to feel like it's doing the right thing in the scene. And you have to convince the producers, and so there's a lot of like, and because in tech things get cut and changed all the time. Every time you go up to <laughs> someone to go, hey, can I talk to you? <laughs> you I was so scared when know, you called me like, into the lobby. Like, you know, <laughs> The lobby of death. That's I'm like, oh, God, my song is being cut. What's happening? I know. And you're going to go, no, it's not being cut. There's just a whole new idea. Yeah, or I'd get, I'd get text messages from Chris Kugel like, here's this new – he just sends me like a little tiny like audio record. He's like, here's this new thing and I can like barely hear it. And I'm like, what? What is what? What are we – what? Are you writing new things? What's going on? We're in yeah, tech. It does get that desperate like to the point where you ask like – you write something, you have to, a new lyric, and then I'll have to just sing it onto voice memo and send it to the music. There's just not time to transcribe it. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's crazy. It's really, it's a crazy process, but it's also very exciting that, yeah. that you know, Maitland's 2.0 was the last song written and it went from being um, an idea to then a, a, a demo that I 
wrote and then um, orchestrated and put into tech by the time we were, we got to that moment in Act Two, which was only like two days or three yeah. days. It was, and it's crazy to go from an idea in the in your bedroom to. Uh, you know, an orchestra playing it on yeah. stage and having it in situ. It's, it's And exciting. it was really different because it was a ballad and then turned into, you know, this rock. Yeah. 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 And I was like, are you sure you don't want to at least hear the other one in front of an audience once? <laughs> <laughs> no, kill it. Yeah. You get attached to it. You can't get attached to things. Yeah. yeah. But then in rehearsal, we were like, I was like, okay, well, this is obviously this going to be these harmonies at the end. And we we're like, you know, wouldn't it? And I said to Kerry, is it, is it possible to go up to that G at the end? And Carrie's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, let's hear this. And she knocked it out of the park. And I'm like, dude, you can, you're going to be able to do that eight shows a week? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and it's so exciting because you don't think it can go any higher and it, and it does. It's awesome. It's awesome. You know, and even like getting to know Sophia's voice, you know, that, that was really exciting. It's a great thing about working with people over a period of years is, is that you learn all the kind of textures mm-hmm. of their sound and, you know, Sophia's got, like, power in the tank when she needs it. Mm-hmm. But she's also got this gorgeous floaty oh, yeah. head voice oh, and and a she's really a unique tone that, you know, you probably don't know because you're inside your own mm-hmm. head. But um, <laughs> That's true. I, I often am. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're hearing what you're hearing, but out, out front, you know, their voices react with orchestras in a really different way, even though, you know, we have a mm-hmm. brilliant sound designer and Pete Helensky who can make every voice type find its own frequency within the orchestra. It still is a sonic thing where every voice reacts with the orchestra differently and and Sophia's voice is like um, like glass. It's so and kind so of, unique. It's like, like listening to crystals or something. And uh, and people come away just going, "Oh my god, that tone!" And so you don't want to like tamper with that tone. You just want to like it's, you just put it in the paint palette and you and you paint with those colors. And that's a really great bunch of things to play with when you when you're writing as well. Yeah, I come at the stage where people are like, oh, your voice, that dead mom stuck in my head. And I say, oh, well, you know, Eddie Perfect writes earworms. <laughs> so they crawl into your ear and they don't leave <laughs> and they just ring in your brain because he writes amazing die. songs. Yeah, no, that's a really catchy. I mean, yeah. like the minute you said, I have it in my head again. Yeah. Um, I mean, all I like all of this is possible, obviously, because Eddie is like alive and here and working <laughs> with you, which is like a, a real treat in musical theater. I mean, the, the two of you have worked a lot on on newer shows where I presume the composer is around but as as a performer what are what is the fun of of having the composer there like really working with you and and kind of tailoring these songs on you too well like you just said tailoring the songs some I've worked with uh uh lyricists and music writers who just like don't come up and then I'm stuck singing a song in a key that I don't like or you know something it's just Eddie's very collaborative and yes. uh, he's always around just like trying things and always like if, if you know and when I remember when we were rehearsing we had like three different rehearsal rooms and one of them was this sort of small one there's a piano and he was always in there playing he was always in there coming up with things I remember yeah, walking in on you a couple times and being like Ooh, I'm gonna go <laughs> <laughs> just cutting your song <laughs> <laughs> Noodling in the tiny room yeah. alone. Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, everyone says music theatre is collaborative and, and I didn't really know what, I thought I knew what that meant and mm. then I came here and I over the past sort of 12 months I've really, you know, for better or worse, learnt what collaboration means. You know, I thought collaboration just meant endlessly having to compromise with other people. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 not. It's, it's super exciting, especially when you're working with great people because, your material just gets added and and plussed continuously, 
Um, and it just it, it it's one of those things where you go, okay, there's a, there's a whole music department like in Australia. If I write something, it's I have to transcribe it, I have to teach it to the band, I have to musically direct, all that sort of stuff. And here, you know, I write a demo and I hand it off to Sasha Bartol and she copies the whole thing down for you and you've got a musical director that's going to be able to do vocal arrangements. It's so collaborative and it's so exciting. It's so quick, the process of it, because people are fast here and they're, they're you know, their muscles are... They're like Olympic level music yes. performers. <laughs> so it's great. It's the best sandpit on earth. It's amazing. That's so funny. Um, I'm I'm always curious about sort of audition stories and specifically for this show, I'm like I would really love to know how do you think of what your audition song is gonna be for Beetlejuice? What did what did the two of you do? Uh, I just got offered the book. <laughs> <laughs> I just walked in and they said it's yours. No, I didn't walk in. They, they just asked me to do it. Uh, I, don't, I always wanted to work with Alex Timbers and I was secreting it. <laughs> you know, I never even read that book, but I was like, I, any interview, I'd be like, my, I really want to work with Alex Timbers. And so then, and then somehow he just called me for this. I don't even know how, but, and he, I obviously said yes. And, and uh, I've, it, I've never felt a part that was like written for me. It wasn't written for me, but it just feels like it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I remember, uh, I. it's really funny with me, I happen to not do my best, I just get so worked up about auditions, and I remember when I went in for this, I was like, I've been this huge fan, all these awesome people in a room, and somebody went in before me and just knocked it out of the park, and I was like, oh, fuck, you know, oh, great, <laughs> now I gotta go in, and now I gotta go do this, and oh, my God, this is not gonna be good, and I went in, and I sang, I sang, I can't remember what I sang, but I sang a sort of rock song, and I sang the song that Eddie had written, and uh, I left and I was like, you know, actually, that wasn't so bad. That was okay. <laughs> and then I, I got off of the part and I was, I was so surprised. I was like, really? <laughs> all right, cool. And then I, I turned up and I just sort of fell in love with all of it. Because how old were you when you walked into that room? <laughs> uh, 15. Yeah. 15. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that, we're, there was a big, how old is Lydia? That was a big discussion. Mm-hmm. And... Of course, we were really excited to work with someone that was Lydia's age, 15. And because there had to be something about the character where they were young enough to um, um, to still need the home environment. You know, it wasn't they weren't transitioning out into the adult world. So at no point could an audience go, oh, just go rent a, an apartment mm. and do your own thing. Um, and so we saw a lot of... Like I, I would just get the vi- – I wasn't in the room. They would just send me videos. And so I'd be at home in Melbourne looking at videos and I remember watching Sophia's and it's like the videos are the worst because I don't know if you know this, but New York is like – got it's, it's just sirens. And, oh, yeah. and I'd always like be sitting there, you know, on my laptop and all I can hear is jackhammers. I'm like, this is place is so loud. And then, you know, in there, it's like a normally just like a uh, an iPhone video, really, isn't it? Like, there's yeah. nothing nothing magical and there's no amazing microphone setup or anything. So it's like pretty much just point and shoot an, an iPad or an iPhone. Um, so, you know, you see a lot of stuff and you go, oh, yeah, that's good. And then, and then you see the right person and it just leaps out. And that was what it was when we saw mm-hmm. Sophie. So they kind of, there's a list of people and you're kind of clicking through. And 
And I remember just kind of, I don't know, you maybe like three or four on the list and I just rang the writers and I was like, she's just so fierce, she's so amazing. And they were like, yeah, she's amazing. So that was great. You just know when you know. That's really funny. I thought the opposite was happening, so. Yeah, <laughs> not her. Not, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even like, I didn't even realise there was like a whole other page with bios on it. So mm. I didn't read anyone's bios. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> it that's all the way worked to do out. It, though. I think that's the way to do it. Honestly, I have so many actor friends in New York who don't have credits, and people look at that, and I'm like, you know, just look at their talent. Like, look at what they're doing. People deserve opportunities, you know. Yeah, and a lot of it does, but a lot of it doesn't so mean I like anything. That you, to I like me that either. you didn't. Yeah. I like that you didn't read that. Yeah, no, I was like, I don't know what that is. Okay, sounds good. That's so great. Well, I like. I was curious whether you all have like known Lydia's in your lives. I feel like she's like a certain kind of. You know, like goth cool girl that like we all at some point in our lives want to be. In I a way. myself am strange and unusual, <laughs> so yeah, I definitely relate to Lydia. I know a lot of friends who are like her. Um, in fact, like all of my friends have just been inspiration when I was making it. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of. Uh, I think that the Lydia that we have is very like relatable. Uh, in the movie, I I always loved the movie growing up, and I always wanted to be Lydia. But I think there's sort of like with the movie, there's like they romanticize uh, sadness and uh, depression and all of that. And I I think that we actually tell really uh, a unique and accurate uh, story about what it is to be a teenage girl grieving. Uh, so I think that she's actually you know really relatable, at least to me and my friends who have seen the show. And all the writers were really great about that. Like, like we were talking about collaborating. Um, they listen to what I have to say, so that made me feel really nice and heard. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that it's really relatable. Oh, totally. Or, or did you ever have Lydia moments in your youth? Well, I I wasn't like dark in any way. I was like, <laughs> but I but I'm fascinated with dark stuff. I don't know. I don't know why, but it, that's. Black com. I grew up. My dad was into black comedy, so I, I, I and you know, in Australia, we get equal parts um, uh, U.S. culture and and U.K. culture. So, um, but but in terms of comedy, a lot of it was, um, you know, it was um, English dark stuff. It was Blackadder. It was Monty Python. It was you know that kind of comedy. And I, I think American black comedy started coming through later into my consciousness and certainly onto my television set. But um, yeah, like um, my wife certainly had um, had a a very Lydia esque experience. She's not a kind of a gothic person, but she lost her mother when she was eight years old, mm. um, and you know she always seemed to be kind of um, you know at peace with it or controlling it. But there was something that happened when we had our when we were pregnant with our first daughter. It just all came roaring back like mm. it was real and. Um, it's, it's so, um, it was so important to me that, you know, I respectfully used what I know of my wife's story when it came to writing Lydia. She, she, her experience of life was just that all of a sudden the frivolous things of youth stop and you see the world in a completely different way where the, the the thing you most love, the thing that makes you feel um, connected and home vanishes and other people seem frivolous and small. And so we were, I was always sort of writing from that perspective and we, there were lots of open-ended questions about act, 
too, what would happen with Lydia. At some one point very early on, she went to the netherworld and she met her mother. Right. And so we had a song or kind of a duet where between Lydia and her mother where her mother was telling her, you know, to turn around and, and live. And I remember myself, um, Scott and Anthony were having a drink at a bar and we were after a workshop and we were like, it, it, it doesn't feel like it honours the reality. You know, we don't, didn't want to represent this idea where everybody dies and they get reconnected with the people that they they love, you know, that there had to be a big question mark. There had to be a choice for Lydia about in diving into an abyss of empty nothingness or returning home and cleaning up the mess that she's made and clinging to the people in her life. And a lot of that came about, I mean, I think the... And, and originally I think it was... Um, Barbara that went to the netherworld with um, Lydia. But having spoken to my wife, she was like, isn't it about the father and the daughter connecting? Shouldn't they reconcile in the netherworld? And so I, I pitched that to the writers and that's what we tried and that's what ended up happening. So all of that was informed by my wife. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to ask because the, I mean, obviously the, the sort of stage magic and theatricality that we see on stage is like such a huge part of what makes the show very, very entertaining. I like, I have to imagine as a performer, the stage is kind of like, an, not like an obstacle course, but I feel like if you go the wrong way, you might disappear into like an invisible door or something. <laughs> like, what is it like to kind of navigate that every night? It's dangerous. We have <laughs> fire. We have smoke that it's hard to not choke on. Uh, We have magic. We have everybody running around on the stage at once, and if you miss it by a foot, you're going to get whacked in the head. Um, (laughs) By one of, like, nine Beetlejuices. (laughs) Yes. The trapdoors that freak me out. Oh, yeah, the trapdoors are... There's huge holes in the ground. Yeah, there's huge holes in the ground sometimes. They're very scary. Uh, And also, uh, yeah, just with any of the magic and stuff we do in the show, it has to be done with caution. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of terrifying sometimes, but we've also got into a really good consistent routine of how to do uh, the magic and all that. But sure. Carrie, I know Carrie has to do some very intense stuff while yeah. pyro's going off and lights yeah. are flashing. <laughs> I, I cried one day during rehearsal. The first time I've ever cried like during a rehearsal for any show I've ever done. But I was like, and I, for the whole beginning, even for DC, I thought, I am never not going to be scared doing this show. It's never going to be a place where I'm like, oh, great. It's just another show. (laughs) But it's at that point now, luckily. But uh, so one time I'm doing this like levitating thing and uh, I was like, okay, finally comfortable levitating. And then they were like, okay, now all these explosions are going to go off around you. I was like, what? Are you okay? And I'm like tears forming. I said, it's it's okay. I'll be fine. (laughs) I like the levitating is I don't understand. I can't figure it out. It's magic. You're not it's gonna magic. Give it away. We're really flying is what I tell people because we are really flying. We use the magic carpet from Aladdin. That's, <laughs> that's the secret. That's the secret. <laughs> it all makes sense now. Um, well, congratulations on all of the Tony nominations. Thank you. for you, Eddie. Thanks. Yes. It's so exciting. It's crazy. How's it feel, Eddie? <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. Because, you know, you, get, you have to be in a room with, like, your, my heroes, you know, yeah. it's insane. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's, you know, what it's like when you're in a room with your heroes. You just want to run away. You don't want to talk to them. You're like, oh <laughs> god, this can only end. Just embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of um, 
a lot of like kind of functions and interviews and stuff. But um, it's it's so great for the show. You yeah. know, the show is is I mean I'm obviously part of writing it, so it's, it feels weird to say it, but I I really I really love the show. It's it's a bonkers show. It's like a proper roller coaster of a show and a kind of a visual and oral assault. Um, <laughs> and you know, like it's it would be it would be easy to over overlook or dismiss, I guess, because you know it is an adaptation of a film and you know that sometimes those things can go against you. But the amount of work and care and love and detail that's gone into it is immense and I'm really proud of it. I'm just glad that we're amongst all of the other incredible shows that are on this season on Broadway. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, it definitely feels like a lot a lot of elements coming together to make a whole that is just it's really enjoyable, which is a nice thing to have in theater. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of joy for once. Yeah. <laughs> I know, being happy. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for coming and good luck with uh, the coming weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks, so much. Thanks for having us. Beetlejuice is playing on Broadway now at the Winter Garden Theater. If you are a fan of Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe on iTunes and give us some stars and nice reviews. You can also find the podcast on platforms like Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you want to find me on social media and talk all about the podcast, I'm at Rebecca Millsoff on Twitter and at YaDownWithRMM on Instagram. And you can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway and hope to have you back next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.